Welcome to Days of Roar, the Detroit Tigers podcast brought to you by the Detroit Free Press. My name is Mark Gorash. I am here with Tigers beat writer Evan Petzold. Uh, we're transitioning here into a big baseball day. We have game seven of Houston, Texas. We have game six of uh, Arizona and Philadelphia. But really what we have is a super special Days of Roar interview with the great Dan Dickerson. We're going to get to that in a minute. We're going to talk about a few things. How are you feeling today? No, feeling good. I want to give a quick shout out to my parents, Julian and Jennifer Petzl. It's their 30th uh, anniversary today. So shout out to them. Thank you for always showing me the way, showing me the ropes, raising me up and uh, showing me how to love. So appreciate you guys and uh, very, very thankful for you and happy for you guys. I hope you enjoy your day. As for the rest of my week, I mean, it's been good. Kind of same old, same old, chipping away at some different stuff. Obviously, we got some topics to talk about and then you know, getting Dan Dickerson on the show was such a treat for us, something we've been wanting to do for a long time. So I'm very thankful that he was willing to to give us his time and, and join us. Yeah, it was awesome to be able to get to talk to Dan. There's been some great baseball. And after this weekend of football, the nicest thing I can say is I was still able to take a walk on both Saturday and Sunday while both of uh, my football teams basically laid down in the middle of the road and were run over by, you know, eight or 10 semi trucks. So, hey, you know what? I was a happy man on Saturday because my wife got her master's from U of M. So we were two happy campers that night watching that game go down. Man, that was that was something else. I can't say that I wasn't expecting that yesterday. That was shocking. I, it was disappointing, but I think probably if you understand how NFL football works, you kind of in the transition to being good, you need to get run over once in a while to keep you humble. And they got run over yesterday. All right. Well, let's get into the baseball. Like I said, some great baseball stuff going to happen today, but we got a couple Tiger things we want to discuss. You wrote some great articles in the last week. First one, you. Once again, visited the Javi Baez question. I've been thinking a lot about the Javi Baez question for the offseason. I think I'm a little more optimistic than most. I don't think he's ready to be done because essentially, if he's not better, he is pretty close to done. So let's get into question number one of the big two. Is there any, is there any hope for Javi Baez? I know you have spoken to him. You kind of have some ideas what he's planning on this offseason. And why don't you give an idea about what you think he should do? And I think we can revisit some of my ideas about what I hope some form of the Javi Bias revival tour needs to happen so he's at least reasonably productive in 2024. For sure. Just to get out front on this, and we've been out front on this, he's going to opt into his contract. I know, you know, he still hasn't made that decision official, but he's coming back. It's going to be, you know, four years, $98 million, and the Tigers are not planning to eat out his contract, at least not yet. I don't see that happening um, for at least a year and a half two years. I mean, it's, it's really hard to eat that kind of money. If you can look at Javi Baez and say, okay, you know what, at least he can be an elite level shortstop. That's what they'd like to get him to. I don't think that's not guaranteed, but it really all does come down to the offense and, and what can Javi Baez be on offense. The numbers, again, were not there this season. He had 222 with nine home runs across 136 games. Mark, I want to read you his numbers from the last two seasons because I do think they're important to kind of look at what this guy has been, you know, so far in his Tigers career. You have to remember that this guy's been here for two years now and he's collected, you know, $42 million. And this is not a guy worth, you know, $42 million. He had been in the past maybe, but but not recently. 230 batting average, 26 home runs, 50 walks, 272 strikeouts, and a 634 on-base plus slugging percentage across 280 games. He was 1.9 F4 in 2022, and then 0.8 F4 in 2023. His 75 WRC+, plus, which spans the last two seasons, I've been reading off the stats, ranked 109th among 110 qualified hitters. 
So he's been one of the worst hitters in baseball from a you know qualified hitter standpoint. Just hasn't been productive. We all know the backstory of the Tigers searching for an elite shortstop. They went to pursue Carlos Correa. He turned down immediately, switched agents. The Tigers end up with Baez. And it just hasn't happened. Now, the biggest problem in 2023, and I know you can attest to this as well, he couldn't hit the fastball. He hit 177 against four-seam fastballs and 195 against four-seam fastballs inside the strike zone. And then a lot of the fastballs he did put in play to the outfield, they all traveled to the right side of the outfield, which that tells you something about a swing. And I think that's where the big change needs to happen. So I think the Tigers would like to see him make a swing change of some type, maybe even a path adjustment. But it all comes down to is Javi Baez ready to put in that work. The problem that we saw this past season was they were giving him things to do. They were trying to make tweaks. He never made any adjustments, right? Like we never saw a, a legitimate change in him. We never saw a real change. And I think for a guy who's been doing it the same way for his entire career, you know, he's 30 going on 31 now. Imagine doing something the same way over and over and over again for, you know, a really long time and then being told, okay, you need to change. But then you also need to go out there and you got to face, you know, 95 plus with a nasty slider every night. Like that's not easy to do. This is going to be a huge offseason for him. I think he's finally realized that what he's doing is not going to work. I think there was that aversion to a change. And now he's at a point where he has to really make that that choice and make that change. And, you know, there are certain areas and certain environments that the Tigers believe they can put him in to allow him to make those changes. That, you know, batting cage in Puerto Rico, right? Like that's a, that's a safe place for him to make adjustments. Spring training games, that's a non-competitive area for him to try to work on and implement those changes, right? If the guy really struggles in spring training, like who cares? Like those, those, those numbers don't matter anyway. So I think that the buy-in is going to be there this offseason. And that's the biggest thing to an actual change. But he has to be bought into it. And he was not bought in enough you know, last year. And I don't think that that's a problem with his effort or anything like that. It's just an implementation issue. I mean, again, this is a guy who's been doing it the same way over and over and over again. He's going to have to make some swing changes. I know you have some thoughts on that. Bottom line, it's real simple. We've gone over this numerous times. He's going to have to make some swing tweaks. He didn't beat a fastball to the spot off season. I'm not sure he pulled a fastball for a homer the entire year. It's part of aging. It's part of things that every athlete goes through. I think Javi Baez loves playing baseball. And if Mm -hmm. he wants to continue playing baseball, he's going to have to do some work so that he's a productive hitter. Otherwise, you know, his time of being a regular in the lineup is (laughs) going to end here shortly. You cannot put up the type of offensive numbers at the cost that he, you know, at it, it, it the level of contract that he has and be a regular in the major leagues. He's more than good enough to be a utility player just solely based on his defensive ability at three infield positions. But, you know, I, I don't think that's what his idea of how he wants to go out is. And I can promise you that's not how the Tigers want to see him go out. So everybody comes to this realization at some point in time in their career And I think this winter is the time that Javi Baez is going to have to address it. I mean, there's no more proof in the pudding than his savant numbers where he was a minus eight against four seamers and a minus nine against sinkers. I mean, it's last year in 2022, he was a plus 10 against four seamers. So you, you, the productivity level on just four seam fastballs turned around 18 in run value, that that just tells you there are swing problems that he has. I don't think from an exit velocity standpoint that there's a problem. His average, you know, his max exit velocity was higher in 2023 than it was in 2022. His average exit velocity was the same as it was in 2022. He just didn't barrel the baseball up, which says that he has mechanical issues He's never going to be the type of player that recognizes spin well. He's going to swing at balls in the left-hand batter's box. That's Javi Baez, and that's fine. But if he's making contact and driving the ball out of the park 20 times a year, nobody cares about swinging wildly at sliders in the left-hand batter's box. And I think the objective is pretty reasonable. Have a 720 OPS hit 20 dongs. He's a three-war player if he does that. 
He's been a 2.7 war player combined over his two seasons as a Tiger. Mm-hmm. And that's all based on fielding. He's a 61 WRC plus this year. I have a plant in my house that was a 65 WRC plus this year. <laughs> okay. So okay, can I, can I ask you a question then? Can I ask you a question? Cause you bring up the defense. Would you be more comfortable seeing him in the everyday lineup if his defense was truly elite? And I know the numbers look really good. I know the metrics look good, but you know what I'm talking about where, you know, we see him make those spectacular one-in-kind plays that nobody else is going to make. And then, you know, he's botching the routine throws to first base. If he was able to make both of those types of plays and the defense was truly elite, would you feel better about just batting him ninth? Who cares about the offense? We know we're paying him, but we're paying him anyway. At least we're getting a truly elite defensive shortstop. I mean, there's a reason as good as the defense is that, you know, he's not getting nominated for any gold gloves. There's a reason for that, right? Like, and say what you want about the gold glove process, but you get my point. If he's truly an elite defensive player, do you feel better about the lack of offense if there is no improvement? First of all, he is truly an elite defensive player. So I think you know what I'm talking about, Mark. When, I, I, when I'm I, talking I, about skipping skipping balls in the dirt, okay, not making the routine plays. It, he disappears sometimes. He really does. And, and mm. You've seen that. Well, You've here's what that. I'll here's what I'll say to you. Every shortstop in baseball is going to make 15 errors. Okay, a, b, e, the only reason why you have an issue with him skipping balls to first base is because you watch it every day. The fact is. Obviously, sure. not many got by Torkelson. Most other shortstops often skip the ball by. He makes great relay throws. Mm-hmm. And the numbers are what the numbers are. He's still one of the, I think he was ninth or 10th in Savant in all of baseball in defense. And I yeah, think and now it's above average for sure. Right. And also pretty strong in, uh, in DRS. He's the greatest tagger to ever play baseball and it's not something that is utilized that often but it is a fact okay so you're fine with the defense now i'm totally 100 percent fine with the defense okay. i think people overreact to the poor throws to first base at the end of the day if those balls were getting by torkelson one after the next he wouldn't be putting up the numbers that he's putting up so the bottom sure. line is he cannot cannot exist being a sub 600 OPS player. So that that's what needs to happen. He needs to fix his hitting to be at least somewhat productive. You cannot be in the bottom 2% of, of baseball in offensive productivity. So you, 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 are you okay with him being, I mean, what's your expectation? You, you watch him every day. I mean, you see the type of, I mean, mentally this has to be pretty difficult on him, right? No, I mean, point blank, he's got to be better. Like that's end of story. I I don't really think there's any question about it. I think the Tigers are stuck with him. Like, again, I don't think they're just going to go and buy him out of his contract this year or next year. Uh, Again, when you look at him being around for four more seasons, you know, maybe it's, midway through year three of that is maybe if they're really making a push like again you, you got to have a good team to buy a guy out of a contract like that like you have to have a team that's that's ready to go and win and and win it all and you have somebody who's going to be able to step in and replace him at shortstop too and, and do an even better job defensively and do a better job offensively so i think for now like his spot on the team is safe and everything like that but he does need to improve if he wants to get back to being somebody that the Tigers can rely on. But yeah, he's he, he's down in the dumps about it. Like, wouldn't you be? I mean, it, it's it's this continuous like over and over and over again where he's not meeting any expectations. You know, expectations for himself, expectations you know from the team, expectations from his teammates. Like he's Javi Baez, he's El Mago. He's supposed to you know be able to go out there and, and carry a team at times. He's supposed to have stretches where you know he can really be the guy in that lineup and. He just hasn't been the guy in that lineup for more than you know a week at a time so far in his career with the Tigers. We've seen it in spurts, maybe a week, maybe a week and a half. But aside from that, he hasn't carried them for a full month. Like that, that hasn't really happened. So he's got to change. He's got to make adjustments. Obviously, he's beat up about it. I think he's you know highly disappointed in himself. I can sense the frustration, but I can also now start to sense a little bit more. Like he really wants to change, and he knows he needs to change. So it's going to be a big offseason for him. But that's that's kind of what I got there. All right. Well, we're going to see what happens. Like I said, I I still think he's going to go 
for intensive, you know, hitting analysis at a place like Driveline or someplace, so. someplace like that, and then take it back to Puerto Rico and see if he can't apply it out on the Baez estate for the next two to three months and hopefully bring something better into spring training. And obviously, it's probably one of the biggest priorities of the Tiger offseason. All right, let's touch on one more thing here before we get into the Dickerson interview. Interesting development from an offseason award standpoint. Zach Jordan McKinstry was nominated for a gold glove Release. He's in. He's a finalist in the category of utility player. Want to know your thoughts about that? I think we've had quite a few discussions about Zach McKinstry. I think he's proved to be an unbelievably talented defensive player, far better than you or I had any expectations of it this spring. His hitting speaks for itself. We just have discussed how unbelievably futile it's been besides very unique May. But he is a gold glove finalist, and knowing how A.J. Hinch prioritizes defense, especially in utility players, the question becomes, will Zach McKinstry make the 2024 opening day roster? Is that a yes? Is that a no? Give me the beat writer perspective on that. I'm somewhere torn in between. Like I, we talked about him most like recently on the last podcast going through the 40 man roster. And I do want to bring up the numbers because I did say I wanted to look it up. I did end up looking it up. I have a few things on McKinstry to touch on, but his performance in May, 301 batting average, 20 walks, 15 strikeouts, and an 865 OPS over 26 games. He had a 454 on base percentage that month that ranked fourth in the big leagues behind only Juan Soto, Aaron Judge, and Freddie Freeman. In the other five months, though, McKinstry had a 217 batting average with 24 walks, 98 strikeouts, and a 607 OPS in 122 games. He had 20 walks in May compared to 24 walks throughout the other five months of the season. That was kind of my little data dive that I did. Not a big one, but just, you know, kind of referencing, hey, how do you perform in May versus all the other months as well? If he performs like, like he did in May in spring training, I think he's got a spot on the team for sure. Hands down, no question about it. The big question is going to be, you know, what does he provide? What is he going to be able to do, you know, when camp comes around? Right now, I lean a little bit more towards no because I do like Andy Abanez, and I also think that Cole Keith is going to be on the roster. I think Justin Henry Malloy is going to be on the roster. Maybe they go out and they add somebody else. You know, they have some guys that are on the 40-man, like a Wenzel Perez, who probably starts in Toledo, but maybe he has a big spring training and makes a push. We'll see what all happens there. What I found very fascinating about Zach McKinstry, though, was back in August of 2022, Before the Tigers even got him, he was playing second base with the Cubs, slipped and fell while tracking a fly ball, you know, beyond the infield dirt and into the outfield. And he told me he tore his groin. And he said that that basically consumed his entire, you know, previous offseason leading up to his spring training with the Cubs, where he only had three hits and then got traded to the Tigers right before opening day. Point is, he talked about, hey, look, like that groin injury never appeared in any public injury reports. Like I I had the injury, I played through it. Then I, you know, rehabbed with physical therapy in the offseason and, essentially spent most of the offseason working back and trying to get that healthy. And that was his his main point. Now, he had wanted to work on his core stability, and he really wanted to get his core strong and stable and really focus on rotational power. He wasn't able to do that because he was rehabbing. So it sounds like this offseason, he really wants to attack that rotational power and, and increase that, get that core stronger, focus on the stability. Maybe that adds more power. That's kind of what he had talked about. And maybe that helps him get to the 13, 14, 15 home run range as opposed to sitting around, you know, single digits in the, you know, I mean, upper single digits. But so, yeah, we'll see if that makes a big difference, something that he really wants to work on. For him, though, Mark, and I think you agree with this too, it just comes down to drawing walks. It just comes down to picking the right pitches and having quality, you know, at bats, right? Like I understand, you know, you want to break into the league and to break into the league, you got to put up numbers to put up numbers. You got to get hits. But for Zach McKinstry, I truly believe that it all starts with a quality at bat and drawn walks. I think he's locked for the roster. Wow. Wow. Okay. Real simple math. You got a catcher. You got Andy Abanez and Zach McKinstry, right-hand hitter, left-hand hitter. Both can play outfield. Both can play infield. Somebody's got to back up at shortstop. And that's you need true a, there. That's and facts. You, and you need a backup outfielder. 
So not sure who the outfielder is going to be that's the backup, probably. But he's got to do some work to stick, though, doesn't he? I mean... Yeah, well, I think Matt Veerling's the backup outfielder, okay? And, you know, it'll be interesting to see what kind of roster they assemble and who's going to be the DH. So is somebody that's sharing time with Carpenter going to be the DH? I think it's Malloy. Um, I think it's going to be that revolving door. I, I tend but, to think that Justin Henry Malloy, as much as people are clamoring for him, either will not be on the roster or will get traded this offseason. So, I yep. disagree completely. Just want that on the record. Okay. Well, that's something we're going to have to disagree upon because you, if you're expecting the team to win 84 games or more, you are not going to win that many games with so many young kids playing. Somebody's got to be a veteran bat, and the position of veteran bat is going to play either full-time DH or a lot of right field and DH. So, you know, unless... Right, and again, I want to put it on the record that Tigers don't want a full-time DH. Well... You know, as they, of now, I mean, again, plans can always change, but I, I, I pay no attention to any of that. I think that based upon your capacity to add players and fill out a roster, you make tweaks as time goes on. If they could get a player like Tyler O'Neill as an example, who, you know, can pl- play elite defense in right field, who's got big power as a right hand bat, who's got one year before free agency, who the Cardinals hate, and you can get him in a trade for other things. Yeah, I think the DH idea goes right out the window and you adapt to what kind of players that you can get. If you can sign J.D. Martinez, the idea goes right out the window. And I can promise you the Dodgers are not resigning J.D. Martinez. They are signing Shohei Otani. All right, we're doing this a different day. All right, get We're doing this a different day. All right, so we're very excited to share the fact that we got a chance to talk to Dan Dickerson for about 40, 45 minutes the other day was a true pleasure, an icon in Tiger broadcasting. Hard to believe that we've been so fortunate to uh, have both Ernie Harwell and Dan Dickerson. We talked to him about a bunch of topics, anything from what went on this season, you know, about his extensive use of uh, data into his broadcast, about what he thought about the team, about having different partners this year. And we're excited to share with you the Dan Dickerson interview. We're going to take a break first. And when we come back, Dan Dickerson. All right. It's time to welcome Dan Dickerson, longtime legendary voice of the Tigers to Days of Roar. We've been targeting him as a potential guest since we started this podcast way back in spring training. So we're thrilled to have him with us here today as we continue to recap the 2023 season and look ahead to 2024. Dan, it's an honor to have you. Thanks for joining us. Oh, I always like talking baseball with you. Thanks for having me. For sure. So let's let's dive right into it, all right? So first year of Scott Harris, third year of A.J. Hinch. What did you think about year one of Harris? What's the trajectory of the organization? And honestly, how quickly can these Tigers become a potential playoff team? Yeah, I think, you know, they don't like to talk this way, but to me, it's like, I'll I'll take a last question first. I don't think there's any other goal going into next year other than win the Central. Um, I know they like to talk about, you know, win today, and that's fine. And I think that keeps, that's kind of their their mantra, and that's how they they go about their business every day. But that's got to be the goal going into next year, because I think they made a lot of improvements this year, and I think they're going to make some interesting off-season additions, or they're going to I think they're certainly going to add some in the offseason. I don't know if it's going to be big name free agents, but they're going to add and they're going to be, I would think, a contender for the Central Division title, and they should be. So first year of Scott Harris, to me, I was just very impressed because I, I kept going back to all the things that he outlined at his introductory press conference in September of 2022, and then he basically just went about doing it. You know, every move that he made in the offseason was about guys who knew how to control the strike zone and dominate the strike zone on both sides of the ball. And they targeted those guys. And the guys who didn't fit into that obvious category, I think uh, they realized that they could take that person and make him better, like a Michael Lorenzen. So, and then everything in the minor leagues was was geared toward that. I think that's been probably the biggest thing that, and Scott, you know, talked about it at the season-ending press conference. We have to do more. They're really, I think, happy with how certain guys progress. But to me, the, the new technology and all the information you have 
the next thing that's going to separate teams is going to be who knows how to use that information the best to make their own guys better. And the Tigers knew that they had to do that and add more talent to the system. That's why I think they were really happy with their draft. But he did all those things. There was serious investment in player development. And he said, you know, we have to do more. But everything that he had outlined in that press conference, they did. They, they gave more playing time to young players. They had to find out about Torkelson, Green, Carpenter, Badu. Parker Meadows gets the call at the end of the year, Veerling, Maton. And they found out some things. Some guys made it and some guys didn't, but the majority did. I think they know now Parkinson Green Carpenter can be the middle of the order for years to come. I think they're pretty excited about what Parker Meadows might do defensively, especially out in center field for the next 10 years or so. And now they know what they need to add in the offseason, knowing that you've probably got at least two more young hitters coming next year. But I think they know they've got to add a veteran bat or two. So all I'm impressed. I, I think that he and AJ worked well together. You know, publicly we see them joke with each other. It does seem like they have a good relationship. But I don't think that's that's you know just for a show. I think they talk to each other every single day after every single game and challenge each other. Not about why did you make this move, but have you thought about this? Or just one will get the opinion of the other, and then it's like, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. I mean. There aren't too many people who can make AJ go, yeah, you know, he's made me better. And Scott Harris clearly feels like AJ's done that with him. That's the one person who kind of maybe can get lost in this from the outside looking in is AJ Hinch, but because he's been here for three years, he's not the fresh new face, but at the same time, he's the guy that has to kind of make all this work, mix and match and blend. And it does seem to work into some of his strengths as a manager. I know back in Houston, right? He kind of, you know, plug that lineup in one through nine and roll with it. But here in Detroit and with Scott Harris doing what they did this year, how about AJ Hinch and just the masterclass of the the art of being a manager and plugging and playing, mixing and matching all season. It was starting lineups that were different all the time. Pinch hitters coming in. We saw that a ton. Defensive replacements. I've never seen anything like that. How impressive was that right. to you? And what does that maybe mean for the Tigers moving forward? They have a guy like that who can who can do that and execute that. Right. And right from the get-go, from year one, he talked about the need to believe in guys being able to play multiple positions uh, before you say, no, they can't. And I think that's that, that has just grown in the last few years. And now we see why. The, you know, you, you, you pinch hit in the, like you said, he'd probably love to have the plug-and-play lineup, but that's not what he has. It's a 13-man lineup every day, basically. So when he plugs that guy in in the fifth inning, the consideration is also, where is he going to play defensively? And I love the the next level thinking that we all learned about from him, right? Whether it was the lineups, the way he structured it so that he's forcing decision points on the other side because he put this lefty between this righty and that righty. <laughs> so if you're going to bring in a lefty, he's going to get the matchup two out of three times every time. I watched a game the other night. It was Arizona. They used, they burned three guys in one spot. So they had a pinch hitter, lefty came in, that pinch hitter was burned before he ever stepped to the plate. Right-hander came in to face the lefty. That would never happen with AJ. And I'm not, I'm not being critical of Troy Lavella, but I'm just saying that's the kind of thing that AJ does to stay a step ahead at all times. And he's thinking about the defensive replacement. Okay. I know I'm going to have a lefty on the mound. He's going to be, or a righty on the mound is coming in, maybe the lefty part of the lineup. I know that I can maybe move this guy who just came in to pinch hit in a key situation, move him to third base, which maybe isn't his strongest spot, but he's probably not going to get a ground ball there. And I'm going to bring Shorty in at second base because he's going to probably, I mean, that level of thinking to me is just, that's the kind of, that's the fun stuff that I think we all learned from him this year that I, it is a masterclass and it's every day. And I am so, happy because I know not every you know team gets to do this to be able to talk to him and have that manager show every day because as you know he'll answer any question any question he just wants you to be thinking the game along with him Dan how much do you think that's going to change over the course of the next two years as they integrate more everyday players into their lineup they're not going to have a lineup that's comprised of four or five interchangeable positions forever that that's a that's a function of talent and so they may they tried to optimize their talent as much as they could this year but as time goes on you start hopefully feeding in some of these younger players plus maybe some additions some of that flexibility is going to go away so yeah, I don't know. I, I don't see too many guys with just, I mean, Meadows is going to be in center. Torkelson's going to be at first. Green's probably going to be in left. Baez, <laughs> I don't know. If you guys have ideas there, <laughs> feel free to. <laughs> yeah. 
Biles will be at short, but he's not going to be there every day if he doesn't start hitting, right? I mean, he's not. He's just not. And, and I, I think you're still. But go I was going to say. I was going to say that you know, look, I think Javi's the big one of the big questions of the entire offseason because do I think he's going to be the two ninety eight seventy five OPS player he once was? Probably doubtful. Do I think he can get back to seven twenty with twenty homers? Yeah like to think that that's a low enough bar, but he'd be he'd be pretty effective at that right. that type of level of production. And I think that this year, if he, you know, hopes to continue to have a productive career, he's gonna have to kind of sublimate a lot of things he's done for his entire career and be willing to, you know, go places and get his swing analyzed and make some tweaks to try to tap into what he can do now relative to what he could do five or six years ago. So, yeah. uh, it, because yeah, I, I think, it. I think your point's spot on. I mean, you, you, you can't have a guy OPSing sub 600. I don't care how right. good his defense is. So, right. Right. But getting back to your point, I do think you'll still see with the flexibility of say Matt Veerling, playing the outfield and third base. Ibanez playing second, first in a pinch, third. He also, he wasn't a minus in the outfield. He was solid average in the outfield. I still think we're going to see flexibility at three or four positions that, that AJ will enjoy making sure that, you know, he can still, because you're going to have a lot of lefties in that outfield. And I, I think he still is going to have that flexibility as those guys learn how to hit lefty at the major league level, the flexibility of, protecting them early in the season like he did with Kerry Carpenter and and using some right-handed bats and really being position flexible all around the infield. Yeah, and outfield. I, I mean, to your point, Dan, I mean, the next two kids they seem to be counting on them both also hit left-handed. So yeah, it, exactly. you, you, you have a lot, you have now five left-handed bats. There's some, a lot of lefties. <laughs> some really good left-handed bats potentially, though. But absolutely, it, it, it's why I think, you know, when you start looking at a DH position and third base, you're probably going to need somebody that swings from the right side to play those positions because you can't, you know, listen, I, I'm sure you can platoon, but you, you're hopefully not going to platoon Jace Young and, and Cole Keith if you don't have to. Right. So, right. Right, but their position flexibility will will help in the scenarios that I was, you know, talking about earlier, where they're thinking about where can they not hide them, but put them for a few innings so they're not going to hurt you, but also increase the odds that they're not going to be challenged defensively in those innings. You know, I, I think Ev and I have also talked about the fact, you know, people, you know, we love the the romance of the idea that you know two really good rookie hitters can get integrated into the lineup, but I think if people remember. Tor- Torkelson and Green was not is was not that smooth a sailing in year one learning how to hit at the major league level because hitting at the major league level is nothing like hitting at the minor league level. So, right, yeah, I mean, think think how I mean, just talking with Tigers coaches and talking with players. I mean, the the, the learning curve from spring to the end of the year for these guys. It's amazing. I mean, you you have to learn how they're trying to pitch you, and then you react to that. And then you handle that, and then they're going to try to pitch you a different way. You have to react to that. There's always going to be ups and downs and spurts for power hitters because once you get hot, the league adjusts to you and makes sure that you're not going to stay hot for that long. And that's why power hitters definitely, you know, can go up and down. Learning where your go zones are. Learning when to attack. Learning when to dominate the strike zone, when to lay off. When they're not going, when they're going to start to nibble, you have to. And that's where Kerry Carpenter, I think, struggled down the stretch. He still wanted to swing. All those things that they were learning this year. I think the one thing that they really were proud of is Michael Bedar brought a very specific, you know, system for game planning every single at bat and talking them through it. And with Keith Beauregard and Jay, James Rouse and Jay Rowe, affectionately called Jay Rowe, I think they really were happy with the system they put in place. And then it's just, you, you have to, there's, there's a learning curve that goes with it. But they, they felt very good about every time that kid's stepping up to home plate, he's got an idea. It's a very simple plan, one sentence plan, and they go try to execute it. And, you know, this is a team that didn't hit the fastball very well. But your key guys, Green, Torkelson, and Carpenter, for the most part, did. 
So there, there was so much learning going on. But as you say, next year, you're going to add, let's say, I think it's almost a certainty, don't you, Evan? It's going to be Keith and Justin Henry Malloy, both going to join this team. But you're Definitely. adding those two to a lineup that's full of first, second, and some maybe partial third-year guys. You need some veteran bats. They don't have to be the big superstar. There aren't that many out there. And this is where Scott Harris, you know, this is where he comes in. You know, you got to probably make a trade to get those veteran bats. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, a trade for sure. But at the same time, we've seen him be creative in getting a veteran bat in an Andy Abani as a guy who's a little bit older, doesn't have as much big right. league experience, but he had been around the league before. Is it a guy like that off of waivers? Or do you go out there and you actually make a move and, and make a trade? Because I do like the core of the Tigers have in place. And, you know, Spencer Torkelson is one of the names we have to ask you about just because of the growth that we saw. I mean, the guy hit eight home runs his first year and then pops off for 31 home runs. I mean, I'm a believer in the fact that there still could be more in the tank in terms of the batting average and the on-base percentage. Where are you at with him in the sense of, okay, here's the progress that he made. Again, super professional, mental toughness. Like he really bought into everything that Michael Berdar brought to the table and, and the systems. And when he stuck to him, he had a lot of success. Where's his ceiling at coming off of this year after the progress that he made? Yeah, I think, you know, you're trying to balance the power hitter. I, I do think the upside is 40 home runs. If he had 31 this year with all the stuff that he was learning. So then it becomes, okay, do you want, if he's going to be a 40 home run guy, the 40 home run guys who also hit for average, th those are the freaks, right? I, I don't know. I mean, and by average, I mean hitting 270, 280, right? That, these days, that's well above league average. So are you, is it a 240, 245 guy with a solid average walk rate? He's above average walk rate, a 10% walk rate, let's call it, that might go up to 10, 12, 13% with a, you know, you're going to live with 25% strikeout rate. And he's a 40 home run guy. I think the one area where the Tigers still feel like, okay, in other words, if you want him to hit 280, and I think they believe he could, I think, you know, look at Paul Goldschmidt. He, he sacrifices power sometimes for that line drive base hit to right in a key situation. I think that's where they're trying to, in other words, when do you take your shot? Because you, your team needs it right now. And when do you settle? for the line drive single with runners in scoring position to get that runner home. And I think that's something he's still learning. Even at the end of the year, he's talked about it, saying, hey, look, there were situations during the season where there were runners on second and third with less than two outs, and I was trying to hit a 500-foot home run, and I didn't need to do that. I just needed to hit the ball to the right side of the field and, yep. and just produce for the team. So that's and the they next believe step. he can do that. Yeah, they believe he can do that. I mean, I think they, they feel his... Look, Think how much better his bat-to-ball skills were this year. Remember how many times last year we talked about it's that groove swing, and if that pitch wasn't in the right spot, he wasn't going to hit it. But and he I wasn't getting so the many balls, examples, yeah. right? So many examples this year of him going down and getting that ball. You know, whether it was a change-up down and away or whether it was, you know, a, a breaking ball down and away and driving that ball much improved against four-seam fastballs this year, and that he had to be, and he was. Because, let's face it, there were doubts going into the season. Can this guy hit a good fastball? Uh, answer, yes. So uh, I, I think that, to me, was the, one of the biggest improvements. 31, what did he end up? 93 RBIs, 31-93. While all those improvements came in the batter's box, uh, in terms of covering different pitches, while still learning how to hit at the major league level. I don't, I don't know. I think you could hit 250-plus with 40 home runs. I think what I'm interested to see, Dan, is, you know, he went home last winter. <laughs> we didn't really, you know, I don't think in some ways he even really understood what he could be or what he was. And there was a lot of tweaks and changes that needed to be made. It was the first time in his life, probably as a hitter, that he had experienced a lot of failure. And, you know, a hitter like that to get beat to the spot by fastballs for an entire season, it, it must have, you know, been humbling for him. But at the same time, I think you got to give the kid a lot of credit. He made some swing changes, A. B, changed the size of his bat, the length of his bat, was willing to make the changes. And not only that, he implemented them, and then when the season started out where he was hitting the ball and the results weren't necessarily mirroring the contact quality, he stuck with it, and eventually mm -hmm. it, it all worked out. So I think that says a lot about 
Spencer Torkelson, I think Evan and I were talking about this. He, he wrote a great article about it, but I said, I think what it says a lot about Spencer Torkelson is his level of professionalism because he stuck with it. And oh, I think that I agree, Mark, so much. I mean, he's what, 23 years old? And, you know, every day we'd walk in that clubhouse and he was always wanting to chat, always usually had a smile on his face. And you knew there were frustrations in the ups and downs, especially until he got hot starting at the end of June. But he was always the same guy. He always talked, to, he was always willing to talk about the work. Uh, mm-hmm. what he was working on, how he was going about it. And I think that's what impressed the coaches most, Mark, is that there, there came a time when all those hard hit balls were not falling and there was frustration. And then there came a time when he walked down the dugout steps like, okay, I got this guy because I just hit the ball hard. I lined out to left. But finally, he was realizing this is the right approach. This process is going to work. And I know fans may tire of hearing about that, but it's absolutely a process. And I think that's when they realize, okay, he's going to be fine. You know, Dan, it's funny though. I think early, he modified the plan a little bit during the month of May and started June, where I think I, I refer to this as the Isaac Paredes plan, which is pull the ball, hit it in the air, and see what happens. And all of a sudden, he started doing that more consistently, and the ball started landing in the stands a lot. And it wasn't always the best for his average, but for the productivity, right. it was really good. And it it changed way, the way pitchers pitched to him. And, you know, he continued to evolve during the course of the season. So I kind of look at this offseason for him a lot differently in the sense, I think he's got a plan now. He just needs to polish it and expand it a little bit. So last year was a whole different story going into the offseason. He had to figure out how to survive and keep his head above water. So yeah. Um, yeah, I'm excited to see what he can do. I, I, I don't, re, you know, I, I, how high I don't look at, you know, it's funny. I'm old and I think, you know, I'm like a lot of older baseball fans, people love to look at batting average. I don't even look at it anymore. I just look at on base. I look at, uh, OPS and it kind of leads me into a question a little bit. I wanted to ask you, you've been amazing at integrating a lot of the new age, type of statistics and the way that people look at the game, you know, different forms of analytics into your broadcast. And, you know, obviously you have a lot of interest in these things yourself. And and, and I was hoping maybe you could expand a little bit about that, about, you know, how you describe the game to people using some of these things and, and maybe how it's evolved over time. Yeah, it's definitely evolved over time, especially as the numbers have exploded. I've always been a numbers guy, so I start there. I, I love numbers, always did as a kid, like figuring out ERAs with a slide rule back in the day. <laughs> Truly did. Uh, Evan, look it up if you don't know what a slide rule is. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I've always loved numbers, but then you just try to, as as you get more and more inundated with numbers. And I, I do give Bill James a lot of credit for just helping us understand, you know, what really matters when it talks about, when he talked about creating runs and coming up with the runs created formula and all that led to it. And to this day, it's still, you know, walks and strikeouts tell a story. And so, so it's fun for me trying to figure out, okay, which of all these numbers that are out there, and there's more and more new stats, what, what's really meaningful? What helps fans understand the game a little bit better. What can lead to a nice conversation with a player or a coach about what they're doing? We've seen this weakness. What does that mean? And they, sometimes I can tell you, you know, don't worry about it. You know, I, I try to figure out how much do spin rates matter with pitchers? Well, they do and they don't. Josh Hader doesn't have a high spin rate, but man, can he throw a fastball at the top of the strike zone and get swings and misses? Absolutely can. So then you realize it's about extension. How well does he hide the ball? You know, what does that what are the characteristics of that pitch if it doesn't have high spin? And how's he setting it up? And I mean, there's just so much that goes into it. Oh, and by the way, vertical approach angle makes a difference. So when I see something that actually can help understand something, like Joe Ryan, this is when I started learning about vertical approaching. It's like, okay, this, you read into it, it's very complicated to me, but at least you can kind of boil it down and say the angle at which, you know, it's a low release. So the angle at which the ball is going into the strike zone is lower than most. 
And that makes, you know, a lot of swing and miss under that fastball when it goes into the strike zone, because I'm looking at Joe Ryan throwing 91 to 93 and getting a ton of swings and misses with high fastballs without a ton of spin. So that's the kind of thing that's interesting to me. What are these numbers helps us understand this better? And then you can go to the pitching coach and talk about it or the pitcher and talk about it. And that's what's fun to me. And you realize that walks and strikeouts, it's still a good place to start. Uh, you're trying to make sure that of all these numbers, you can't overstat a broadcast. That's one thing I've learned a long time ago. So, but you do have a responsibility to look at the numbers so that if you're saying this guy really, you know, you're, you're saying he's a really good hitter. He's one of the top hitters in the league. Well, you backed it up because you looked at all these different numbers or, you know, OPS plus is still a really good place to start, even though mathematically it doesn't make sense. Um, but you've looked at whatever it is that you're trying to say, or what I really like doing, pitcher's got a 480 ERA, these low walks, high strikeouts, doesn't give up a ton of home runs, but it's a 350 batting average on balls in play. You can almost always say that ERA is coming down because that's going to correct. And the ERA is coming down when you see low walks, high strikeouts, high batting average on balls in play and a high ERA. So, I mean, that that kind of thing is fun to me. Or this ERA is artificially low. There's a correction coming. Riley Green hit, what, 347 for 200 at-bats, but he had a batting average on balls in play over 400 in that time. Well, he's going, he's bound to cool off, and he did. But it's not, it's not you know, it's just, that's kind of fun for me to, to use them in that way. I love the numbers. So you're trying to make sense of it and then trying to turn it into a conversation that can lead to, better understanding for listeners. It's it's a beautiful, you know, I know who everybody's listening to in the press box. That's at least what they tell me. So it's a a beautiful way to tell the story of the game, to say the least. All right. So, you know, before we run out of time, we want to touch on a couple of things. One, uh, some underrated seasons this year, some some things that were pretty important. Uh, A guy like Jake Rogers, who did so many good... Great place to start. I mean, people mm-hmm. look at the, people look at a low batting average, and if you're looking at a low batting average for Jake Rogers, you're missing pretty much the entire value of what went on for the entire year. Right, right, and uh, and I love how AJ talked about it. Uh, that hey, it really gave clarity to me. I, I think you were there, Evan, when he was just talking about you know at one point he's just kind of hey, the the power is very consistent. Do what you do well. Don't worry about hitting for batting average. You're a threat. And when you've got a guy who's a consistent threat, and if you look month by month, that power was consistent month to month. Do what you do well. And we're, you know, basically we'll live with the walks or the strikeouts. You know, yeah, there might be a, a few games there where there's not much production, but there is great value in having a catcher who's good defensively. And his defensive numbers probably would have been better if he'd gotten a little more help. I don't think they have any question that he can throw base runners out. I think he went a month without, and then he threw a base runner out and they had the big celebration. But, you know, if, if he'd got a little more help, I think from pitchers, that number is going to go up in the years ahead. His defensive grade is good. And he's still learning how to call a game at the level that I think AJ wants him to. We've talked about it on the pregame several times. And he didn't say it that bluntly, but it's just there was a lot of review. Just, But that's a process. I always remember Brad Osmus, who was very good at calling a game, would said it took him four or five years at the major league level to really get to the point where it was just intuitive what he was going to call based on all the factors that he was filtering through his brain in the space of three seconds uh, before that hitter stood in. So as he gets better there, you've got a number one catcher for a long time. Do you know, it's funny. It's funny you're saying that though, Dan, because it kind of leads me into a question that I, uh, that we wanted to ask you, but I'll, I'll ask it in kind of a few part way, you know, is because it concerns Jake and, and maybe game calling is, you know, look, they use pitch now. I'm curious why they almost haven't put, you know, like they do in the NFL where they have an offensive coordinator talking in quarterbacks ears. Because AJ doesn't ever want to let his, everyone start calling pitches for his catches. They have to learn that skill because they're the ones in the batter's box who are reading the batters. You know, it's, it's ironic to me because I think everybody who knows a little bit about, I mean, you know, Fetter is almost the savant at creating game plans and sequencing methodology 
going into games, it, it's it, it's something he brought to the table coming in, and it, it's like you wonder if they would ever have a you know uh, a coordinate like a it's like a pitching coordinator that just talks in the cat the catcher and talks in the catchers in the pitcher's ear and basically calls pitches from upstairs. I wonder if the game will evolve to that. Yeah. And <laughs> it, 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 no, I, I don't I, think it ever will. Not under AJ. Well, maybe not under AJ, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's weird. You know, nobody thought we were going to have uh, larger bases, uh, a pitch clock and uh, you know, other things that change. So why don't we talk a little bit about you had a year to, <laughs> to look at the changes of the game and talk about what you saw you know, how you think that's impacted the game. And obviously you got one other big one that they still haven't implemented yet. That's probably coming in the next two years. <laughs> no. All right. We'll start with the, the ones they already did. I, I really like, I like the banning of the ship, maybe most of all, well, the, and the pitch clock too, because I don't know. It seemed like right after a couple of spring training games, I didn't even notice the pitch clock. The only time I noticed it the entire season was when there was a violation. And then I'd usually miss that. You're like, Oh, wait, it counts two and one. Hang on. <laughs> but you got used to, you got trying to learn what to look for. But I loved it. So basically, it just took out the dead time. It did everything that baseball said it would do. It moved the game along. I think it made for a better game because every time there's a better pace in a game, defense is going to be better. And I think it allowed the banning of the shift, allowed guys to put their athletic ability on display more often. And we certainly saw that with Javi Baez. But for some reason, it just gave me great pleasure to see a ground ball single to right be a thing again. <laughs> it really did. It was like, oh, maybe it just, I know the, I know what the numbers say. It wasn't a huge difference, but I'm pulled the ground balls. There, there was a pretty big difference for left-handed batters. I really got tired of seeing guys 50 feet on the outfield grass field, yeah. ground balls or line drives. I really did. So I, I welcome that. I thought it was good for the game. I thought the pitch clock was good for the game. Players will tell you that the half hour earlier starting time, half hour off a game, now they've got an extra hour in their day, especially on Saturday nights when you know it's a turnaround for a day game. On Sunday, they they welcome the time off the feet, getting home earlier. Um, these are small things that add up over the course of 162. I thought both were great. Both uh, worked as intended. And, and I, I kind of heard a little bit of a sigh about the idea of the, either the ABS or the challenge system, huh? Yeah, I just, I talk with umpires frequently uh, over the course of the year. I've uh, become uh, good friends with Adam Hamry, who's from the UP, who I think is terrific. So we always make sure we get together, but also other umpiring crews. And just, I always want to hear it from their vantage point. But at the end of the year, I'm blanking on his name, but there was a guy who's been going from AAA to... Uh, the major leagues this year. So he's seen both, right? And I do get back to that they are still having a hard time accurately. And I, I know people say, well, they'll get it. I don't know. Still trying to figure out how to accurately calibrate a two-dimensional strike zone. It was originally it was at the front of the plate and then guys were throwing breaking balls that bounced, but they'd nick the bottom of the strike zone. And so it'd be called strike as it bounced. Well, we can't have that. So they moved the two-dimensional strike zone back to the middle of the plate. It's just, I don't know. I, I, the accuracy of umpires, I mean, they, they're at 97 plus. When they get graded, they get graded every day, pitch by pitch, by Major League Baseball. And the, the criteria are very specific. And, you know, the, they're at a very high level. They still, the two-dimensional strike zone is not. The other thing that this, the AAA guys saw that he said, so think of it, this is at the minor league level. Imagine what goes on at the major league level. So we've, we've been telling catchers and working with catchers so much, and we certainly did saw this with Haas and Rogers this year, the ability to frame a pitch better, receive it better to get, as AJ puts it, not extra strikes, but the strikes you should get called at the bottom of the strike zone, especially. In the minor leagues... <laughs> Because of the challenge system, so those three days of the automated strike zone, three days of the challenge system, this guy said he saw catchers catching balls in the strike zone and yanking their glove down. The umpire would call it a strike, and the batter would challenge because he saw the catcher catch it down here. And so they'd get the batter to burn a challenge because it was an obvious strike, but they're teaching their catchers to do... I mean, I'm like, oh my God. If that's just one thing, the gamesmanship that was going on in the minor leagues, and then pitchers were learning how to just nick the strike zone at the very top, 
with balls that were moving out of the strike zone, two seamers especially. And you're thinking, well, how is their command that good? I don't know. All I can tell you is that this is what the umpires were seeing. A lot of gamesmanship going on, and this was in the minor league. So imagine what it'd be like at the major league level. The other thing that I can't help, I thought an automated strike zone would lead to more strikes and more strikeouts. Take a look at what the walk rate has done at AAA since 2019. In 2019, it was 3.2 per nine. You got to be very specific with this. This year with the automated three days on and then the challenge system the other three days, the walk rate was at 4.8. That's not good for the game of baseball. That's brutal. If you're above 3.5 as a league, go back to the years where it was 3.5. That's a very high walk rate. 4.8 with the automated strike zone. And so anyway, I... I don't think it'll be good for the game. I think it's not just unintended consequences. There are consequences I think we actually can anticipate. And I don't think they'll be good for the game. So, so again, I know I complain about it on the air sometimes, and I really try to bite my tongue. But I have to let fans know that that pitch was three balls off the plate, and it was called a strike. And I don't think you can miss that. So that, that does not mean that I want an automated strike zone. What it does mean is that I would like to see umpires who consistently miss, miss a pitch there's two balls with off the plate. Just go do some VR training in the offseason. I don't think that's asking too much. Virtual reality is pretty impressive. Hitters are using it. Put on virtual reality goggles or some method of training so that, okay, I missed this. I'm willing to go work at it so that I don't miss it next year nearly as often. I don't think that's asking too much. I think we lose something, though, if we go to an automated strike zone. But the challenge system, though, would you be okay with because changes are coming, right? I think, you have I to think. think. I mean, yeah, everything I, I they tested out. Yeah. But they say there are there are games where there are 20 and 30 challenges. And I don't, I don't know if that's great for the game. Right. You know, it, no. it, from, from what you just described about catchers learning how to game the system to burn challenges, I like the challenge system, but... I hadn't thought about gaming the system like that, so I got I got to kind of process <laughs> that idea. I mean, cause I know. I, I, I was so shocked when he told me that. I'm like, what? I, I mean, the ABS I'm kind of in favor of, especially if especially I I'm going to assume they're going to tweak it as time goes on, so they get and they'll set up parameters for the dimension of what's a strike and what's not. But, you know, it's kind of like how I looked at Hawkeye and tennis, which is, look, it's either in or out. It's either on the line or not on the line. And I right, like the what idea. You, what's the replay going to show? It's going to show an imaginary strike zone nicking an imaginary line. Hawkeye and tennis, I watch all the time. Yeah, They're, they're it, looking at an actual line and an actual ball bouncing on or off that line. It, You're gonna, you got imaginary lines in the strike zone. What I'm trying to get to, though, Dan, is, is that I like the idea of once they can perfect it is same strike zone every day, no matter what the park, no matter who the umpire is, you know, one, one game after another and just consistency across the league. And, you know, look, umpires have a slightly different strike zone. You know, they call it slightly differently every day, much less every inning. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and I, you know, that's, it's, Weirdly, a fun part to the game, but I, if there was an, a way to eliminate that nuance of it, I think I'd kind of like it. I like I like the idea, the consistency of the same thing every day, every player, every ballpark, and I think it eventually would be good for the game. If we can't get there, then there's not much point in implementing it. Yeah, yeah. I I do remember one example that they gave of how the the box that you see on your screen can be different. Same game, two different broadcasts. Let's call it, I think it was Phillies and the Mets. The game ended on a controversial called strike high in the strike zone. On one box, it was a ball's width and a half out of the strike zone. And on the other box, it was squarely in the strike zone. The umpire did call it a strike. But he said he was getting absolutely crushed (laughs) on social media. Imagine that. Um, And, but... The two different two different broadcasts had two different strike zones, and he said that is not an uncommon problem. Wow. And that's what I, I worry about in terms of batter to batter. Can you actually get that calibrated right? I know everybody says we have the technology; surely we can, but I don't know. It's, they haven't they haven't progressed as far as I feel like they should have in the last couple of years. All right, for before we get out of here, we got to ask you. Yep. 
was a kind of an unusual year for you. Your your longtime partner mm-hmm. um, and icon of, you know, listening to Tiger Games for all of us, unfortunately passed away. You had multiple partners, all of who brought something a little different to the table and were actually all pretty darn good. So, you know, t- talk to us a little bit about it was you know, a difficult year to navigate in that way. And I, I will, should we assume that they're going to give you one partner going forward or talk a little bit about the season and what you think uh, the next season will bring you? Yeah, I think, um, you know, they're, they're still working on the plan for next year, but uh, I worked with Bobby Scales, uh, Cameron may have been a little bit. It was mostly Bobby on the road. And then when Jim uh, got ill, uh, Andy Dirks started early in the year and then, was the home guy most of the rest of the year. A little bit of Craig Monroe, but I'd worked with him in the in the past more than anybody. So I think all three of those names are still probably voices you're going to hear. Um, you know what? It, I don't know. It, I always thought it'd be great to have just one one partner for 162, but I think I think there's nothing wrong when you got three good ones and they're all good. And I enjoyed working with every one of them. They all added something. Uh, why not find a way to maybe keep all three? I don't know exactly how it's going to shake out, but it, it is, there are three good guys. Andy Dirks was so impressive just because we threw him into it. I mean, he was like, hey, you're here in town. He's in Clarkston where I live. But, you know, he's got a real estate business, four kids, eight years old and younger. He doesn't have a whole lot of time to watch baseball, like none. And we threw him in and he'd get down the ballpark and, you know, he's working a full day in his real estate job. He'd get there, you know, 5.30 or 6. But he would come in and he would lock in from the first pitch. And I was so impressed with the job he did. Bobby Scales brings all kinds of front office experience as well as 13 years as a professional and everything from playing. You know, he was the up and down guy uh, from the minors to the majors well into his late 20s, early 30s. And then he played in Japan. He's got player development background, so he's fascinating. And then we all know Simo, and uh, I love working with him. And he he knows he can put you in the batter's box as well as anybody I've ever worked with. So it's really fun. I think you know it does take time to get to know each guy and the rhythm and pacing of the game with that personality. But they all made it easy. They all got it. Bobby never done it before. Andy's really never done it before. They learned the art, especially as games were shorter. Jumping in, jumping out, making the point quickly, laying out if I have to deliver a pitch and then continuing the thought. I mean, those are all little subtle things with radio that you don't necessarily always have to do on TV. And they were all very good at it. I I said to Bobby at the end of the year, I said, I feel like I'm still learning how to do a broadcast, you know, with shorter gains. But, you know, it's just they all added something. I want to make sure you guys are all getting in and adding something to the conversation because you, you do add a lot. So it was it was an adjustment, and yet it was a, a very fun adjustment that I really enjoyed. That's awesome. Dan, last question I have for you before we wrap this up is just on-field standpoint, like what are you most looking forward to about the Tigers in 2024? Are there certain areas that you can pinpoint where maybe you're optimistic about, you know, what's to come, or, or maybe even big picture stuff that you're really looking forward to? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing the, the moves this offseason. I do think you need to add a veteran bat. You know, I was looking at Arizona. They added Tommy Pham and Evan Longoria. Those weren't probably big names that excited anybody. And yet, you hear how much they've added to a young team in terms of their veteran presence and leadership. I mean, that might be the kind of guy, somebody who's an under-the-radar guy, or you might trade. I don't know. Does Scott Harris not want to trade any of his good young talent? Does he want to put together a package? You'd have to put together a pretty impressive package to to land a veteran bat that you're going to put in the middle of the order of, you know, four through six. So it, that to me is going to be fascinating to watch. I think they add a, a starting pitcher or two on the free agent market. I think they roll with what they've got in the bullpen because I think AJ's, AJ is really reimagining a bullpen where I think what we saw with Tyler Holton this year was a, a, a function, I think, of hiring Robin Lund and understanding how important he was to the staff because he really helped these guys understand you don't save your bullets, 
you use your bullets so that you can manufacture more bullets. In other words, throw. You got to throw. But they measured it and they watched and they understood, made these guys understand, you know, what's your workload been the last seven days, the last 30 days? And now you, Bo Brisky learned this, Evan, you, you know that in terms of how often do I throw? I, I know as a starter, I, this is how I prepare in between starts, but as a reliever, how often do I throw? That was a big learning curve. Tyler Holden worked 80 plus innings in relief this year. That's a really rare feat in any given season across the major leagues. I think AJ is trying to construct a bullpen that could be full of guys like that. So I'm excited to see what they do on the pitching side, but I really am excited to see what happens on the hitting side in terms of what they add, what Colt Keith, Justin Henry Malloy are going to add, and we won't know until next year. But I just feel like they're going to make enough moves that going into the season that this is going to be a team that you're going to look at and say they they have all the pieces to win the Central Division and get to the postseason for the first time since, when's it been, 2014? <laughs> Feels like it's been, forever. It's, it's been a long time. Yeah, it does seem like they are just a few prospects and maybe one piece away on the hitting side from, you know, really, really being a team that can contend with the right. twins and make a push for the postseason. So we'll see what happens. But anyway, I, I feel like we could talk about this stuff for hours. I know. I, I enjoy I, talking I, with you guys. I really do. It's fun talking baseball any time of the year. Yeah, for sure. I think it's all we have, but truly like a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Hopefully we can do this again at some point in 2024. Um, Absolutely. It was, just, it was just awesome. So so thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Thanks for having me, guys. Great talking with both of you. All right, take care. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed that time with Dan. It, as Evan and I have shared, it was pretty awesome to get a chance so to good. talk to him. We'll try to do something like this again next year. Don't know if we'll do it in the spring or during the season, but it was truly awesome to get a chance to talk to him. Touched on so many interesting topics. And as I said, it was really enlightening and an honor for him to uh, spend some time with us. So I want to thank our executive producers, Kirk Crawford and Anjanette Delgado. As always, I'd like to thank my grandson, Braden Michael Gorash, and for Evan Petzold. We'll be back next week, and I'd like to say peace. Peace.